Hello, I'm Bianca. I'm Paloma. And I'm Tom. And you are listening to The Climate Press. A podcast where we aim to bring together climate science with public understanding and action. Welcome to another episode of the Climate Press. Today on the show, we have Dr. Amanda Maycock, Associate Professor in Climate Dynamics and Director of the Institute for Climate and Atmospheric Science at the University of Leeds. Amanda is a lead author of the sixth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, also known as IPCC, and has contributed to the group that deals with the physical science basis of climate change. More specifically, Amanda has been a lead author on Chapter 4, Future Global Climate Projections and Near-Term Information. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to the show. Hi, Paloma. Thanks for having me. After almost four years of hard work, your chapter was submitted just a few days ago. How are you feeling? Tired. <laughs> <laughs> no, elated. Um, yeah, it's a, a huge achievement for you know, my team of colleagues who have been working on the chapter. We had a very busy few weeks finalizing all of the details in the chapter and getting everything, you know, ready to be submitted. Um, so it's a fantastic feeling now to know that, you know, that we've finished and that soon our chapters will be out in the world for everybody to read and, and to enjoy. There's also some, you know, nerves, of course. So we know that, um, not everything might be perfect in there, so <laughs> we, we, we're still waiting to hear from the government. So what will happen next is that the chapters will go to, you know, all the governments to be reviewed. So there's another stage before the report will be published and the governments have the opportunity to, to comment on the chapters or to ask questions of clarification about any of the points that are brought up in the chapters. And once that's done, then the report will be finalised and will eventually be published later on this year. This seems like a great adventure. Have you have you ever imagined when you did your undergraduate degree that you were going to be an IPCC lead author? I think when I began my undergraduate degree, I don't think I knew what the IPCC even was at that time. <laughs> so I, I almost certainly did not imagine that I would ever be a lead author. No, I think as a physics undergraduate, I was too busy getting involved in understanding relativity and mechanics and all of these other topics and not thinking at that time particularly about the climate but um, as my career has evolved and as I've moved into the field of climate science obviously there the IPCC is, is hugely prominent and is a, is a very important body for communicating our research and our understanding to a, a broad base of governments and policymakers and decision makers so it's an honor of course to be involved with that process now in the sixth assessment report this is the first time that I'd been involved with the IPCC process so it's it's been a fantastic experience and how how did you become an author how does the process work do you apply or do they call you 
Yeah, um, I didn't get called up by <laughs> by the government personally. So um, the the department within the government who deals with with climate change um, issued a call to UK scientists to volunteer to become authors of the sixth assessment report. And other governments all around the world have a similar process. So this is how the IPCC puts together this very very. Um, diverse large author team from all across the world by asking for people to you know nominate themselves and volunteer to be involved so the UK government did this process in 2017 and I responded to that call and had to write a um, you know a statement about my experience and my you know suitability for taking on that role and um, those applications are then considered and a subset of those people are then selected to to become the authors. How, how that then works into the actual structure of the report itself. So obviously governments will come together and, and say, you know, here's a set of authors that we have identified to be involved with the assessment. Then the, um, the IPCC Working Group 1 co-chairs and vice chairs in combination with the technical support unit of the IPCC have to try and then put together the specific chapter teams. So you then get allocated to work on a particular chapter. So um, there's a sort of process to the end goal of having these chapter teams actually put together. And they want to make sure that within chapters, they have, you know, a balance across representation Mm -hmm. from different geographic regions, different career stages, um, gender balance, etc. So um, they try to accommodate some of those factors within the decisions about who will be involved with um, the chapters. So it was very nice for me to learn after that process that I was going to be involved in this important chapter on the um, future climate projections. And how many meetings did you have along these years? Yeah, quite a, a lot. Um, <laughs> so the meetings take different forms. So we started out at the very beginning of the process having a, an in-person lead author meeting that was held in China in um, June of 2018. And that was the sort of first opportunity for us to get, come together as a large team across the assessment. So, you know, there are hundreds of authors across the entire assessment and we all met each other, many for the first time, and got to know our chapter teams. Since then, we've had subsequent lead author meetings, but a lot of the meetings have taken place online. So in chapter four, for example, with my colleagues there, we've been meeting every week um, online (laughs) since the beginning of the process. So we've had weekly telecons, and that's been very important for us to keep in regular touch and to identify issues that are emerging during the course of the assessment and to share you know, the latest progress on the different parts of, of our chapter. So we were, we were due to have a final lead author meeting in person last year, um, but that was cancelled ultimately because of the pandemic. So this was then replaced by a sequence of virtual meetings, which were quite intensive over the course of one or two weeks, where we would have several meetings per day to talk about specific cross-chapter issues. So one really important component of the assessment is that the different chapters work closely together and, um, you know, where there are interlinkages or where there are overlaps between the material of different chapters, we need to obviously work through those and discuss and make sure that we all end up with with a coherent final outcome and coherent uh, connections between the chapters. So often these lead author meetings would really focus on those cross-chapter components and we were having lots of online meetings to 
discuss those things in the final months of preparation before the, the submission of the final government draft. Mm-hmm. Compared to the previous IPCC report with the fifth assessment report, what's new in in your chapter? Do you use the same methodology or...? I think one really exciting thing that we've done this time around is uh, relates to our assessment of future global surface temperature change. Mm-hmm. So obviously this is a, a hugely important part of of our understanding of climate change is how the average temperature across the surface of the planet has changed over the past and how it might continue to change in the future. And we know that many of the impacts of climate change increase as the temperature of the planet increases. So we want to be able to understand going forwards into the future how the global temperature is expected to change. In previous assessment reports, so for example, the fifth assessment report of the IPCC, what was done there was that to come up with projections of, you know, likely future global temperature change, the main line of evidence that was used to make those um, assessments was the use of complex climate models. So in particular, a whole suite of climate models run under the auspices of a project called the Coupled Model Intercomparison Project. And those, mm-hmm. um, you know, different modeling centers around the world who develop and build climate models will run simulations, you know, on huge supercomputers with those models all the way out into the future. And they can be used to say what we think that the temperature is going to change in the future. So in the fifth assessment report of IPCC, those future estimates were largely based on climate models. What we've done in this assessment here, which is very new in the sixth assessment report, is to try and combine different lines of evidence into those assessments of future temperature change. So we do still use the comprehensive climate models as one line of evidence. And we have new methodologies that allow us to try and reduce the differences between those individual climate model simulations based on an evaluation of how well they simulate the recent observed climate that we've actually measured. Mm -hmm. So we can use the ability of the models to simulate the recent past as an indicator for how confident we might be in their ability to simulate the future. And we can change, we can weight the models differently and change the um, uncertainty ranges in the end by using that observational constraint. So that's one thing that we've done. But we've also used a new methodology, which is to take a more simplified climate model emulator, which um, still captures the key physics of the climate system that affects the global temperature change, But we can calibrate that simple climate model to assess estimates of things like the the strength of the climate feedbacks in the the Earth system. So Mm -hmm. we can then use that climate model separately to the fully coupled comprehensive climate models and actually combine those two lines of evidence together to come up with an overall assessment of how the temperature will change in the future. And and the consequence of that has been that we've been able to make uh, statements with higher confidence than previously about the ranges of future temperature change that we can expect to see in the future under different um, scenarios for future greenhouse gas emissions. So that, I think, is a very new aspect of how our chapter has approached looking ahead into the future and, and making these types of projections. Yes, with these simple climate models, anyone could run it, right? So it's much easier. You don't really need a supercomputer to to run the simple climate model emulator. And you can get a a nice projection without a lot of computer power. Absolutely. And that's also one of the motivations for why 
within the working group one assessment, we wanted to try and introduce those more simplified climate model emulator systems, because actually those types of models are used in the other parts of the IPCC assessment report. So what we're talking about today is the Working Group 1 report, which reviews the physical science basis for climate change. But there's also Working Groups 2 and 3 who look at the um, climate change impacts and, and adaptation and mitigation. And those other working groups don't tend to use the comprehensive climate models so much. Often they will use the the more simplified climate models because they have a, a much wider range of scenarios that they want to explore for the future. So different pathways that we could take going forwards for human activities and human responses to the emerging climate change and how we adapt our behaviours going forwards. And so in order to be able to look at all of these many different pathways, they have to use a more computationally um, efficient model. And that usually is in the form of one of these climate model emulators. So what we've been able to do this time in working group one is really nice that we can now also introduce those simpler emulators into the working group one physical science assessment as a connection into the other um, working groups. Mm-hmm. Some of the temperature projections and emission pathways explored in Chapter 4 include strong mitigation options such as CO2 removal from the atmosphere. Do all countries have the capacity to get on board? Well, I think that's a big question to answer here and, and, it, and it certainly goes beyond the scope of you know the assessments that are performed within the Working Group 1 in terms of what the mitigation potential of different technologies might be. Certainly, what we do in our chapter within the Working Group 1 report is to look at a range of different possible pathways for the future. Mm -hmm. So this span, you know, different futures all the way from the most optimistic kind of future where we are successful in mitigating carbon dioxide emissions very quickly. We are able to implement these carbon dioxide removal techniques and start to remove CO2 from the atmosphere in such a way that we achieve the goals of the 2015 Paris Agreement of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So, which and 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 one of their ambitions is to pursue efforts to limit the rise of temperature to below one and a half degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial mm-hmm. times. So one of our scenarios that we assess in our chapter is consistent with that type of world. You know, it's a very positive future, if you like. And we span scenarios all the way up to the the kind of other end of the spectrum where we um, would look towards a future where we don't pursue mitigation strategies in an effective way. We continue with a very fossil fuel intensive world and therefore the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere continue to rise quite steeply. So we we consider this envelope of possible future worlds and we present information and evidence about what types of climate change and what types of of effects that we could expect to see if we were to pursue each of these different pathways. So our our job is to provide the physical science evidence so we can say that if if we're successful in mitigating emissions in a way that's consistent with the Paris Agreement targets, then we will be looking at a world by the end of the century where the temperature is, you know, likely to still be below the one and a half degrees limit. If we don't succeed in that and we continue along a pathway of a fossil fuel intensive world, then the temperature change by the end of the century will be four to five degrees. So we have this range of different different options that we could follow depending on our choices as a global society. What's the most likely scenario considering our current emissions rates? 
Well, most likely is is very difficult to say because, of course, we don't know um, what will happen. We've got the COP26 meeting coming up at the end of this year, which will be a big milestone in terms of countries Mm -hmm. updating their commitments and um, updating what we call their nationally determined contributions, which is the commitments from the countries to, to cut their emissions by. At the moment, based on the existing nationally determined contributions that have been set within the context of the Paris Agreement, those trajectories would put us on track to a warming of around about three degrees Celsius by the end of the century. So obviously that's above the targets of the Paris Agreement. So we still have some work to do to to increase those those ambitions to make you know stronger commitments to reduce emissions by the middle of the century to bring that down so that the warming that we see over the century is lower than that. Well, you were also a lead author of the 2018 Ocean Assessment Report. And in the case of the Ocean Hall, we have the great example of the effectiveness of the Montreal Protocol. So what's different now? Why dealing with CO2 is more complicated than dealing with ozone depleting substances? Why is it taking more time to reduce our CO2 emissions? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, the Montreal Protocol is certainly, you know, should be held up as, you know, the most successful um, international treaty to protect the environment, you know, in history. Mm-hmm. So it's it's an absolute um, phenomenal achievement and it has been extraordinarily successful and as a consequence of its success you know we are now observing the healing of the ozone hole and as we move forwards through the century we that will um, continue and the ozone hole will eventually disappear in in a few decades from now so yes you're right it's a very stark contrast between that problem and and the carbon problem it's it is worth reflecting i think on the fact that early on in the days of beginning to understand ozone depletion and the role of certain gases which were being emitted into the atmosphere and destroying ozone. There wasn't unanimous agreement always. I think in the first decade after the the first papers were published that that highlighted this potential problem with these so-called CFC gases, chlorofluorocarbons, which were being emitted, you know, from refrigerants and aerosols, there was pushback at that time from the industries who were manufacturing those gases. It wasn't the case that everybody immediately got on board. It did take time mm-hmm. to uh, come to some realization. And really, it was the observations of the ozone hole itself, which was unexpected. So we did not realize at the time that those gases would have such a dramatic effect on the ozone layer as they ended up having in the form of the ozone hole. So it was the observations of the ozone hole that really started to accelerate that when people realized how catastrophic the environmental damage already was at that time. So, you know, those clear observations of a major unexpected atmospheric phenomenon really did accelerate that process. Climate change is obviously a different sort of beast in many respects. We know that, you know, the signals of climate change and anthropogenic caused climate change have emerged already in many aspects of the climate system. So um, we are already today experiencing the impacts of climate change. But of course, we know that the climate system also exhibits internal natural variations on different timescales some of which can be quite long time scales. And so we're talking about a longer term change to the climate that can take, you know, some decades to to emerge in our observation data. So I think that's part of it in terms of how people experience 
climate and experience climate change, you know, at a kind of local level. Obviously, carbon is embedded within our human systems. Everywhere, yeah. You know, everywhere. And so part of the challenge is trying to have an absolute shift, you know, a major, major shift across so many different human systems. You know, we think about our homes, we think about how we travel, we think about how we produce energy. It's embedded throughout all of these systems. I think for the ozone hole, because it was being caused by a fairly limited set of gases, which were actually being manufactured by a fairly small set of industry. And importantly, there are alternatives to those gases that could be rolled out quite quickly. So you know, what ended up happening was that the production of these gases was reduced and there were replacement gases that were introduced, you know, instead of those ozone depleting substances. And so there was a, a straightforward fix in a way that could easily be implemented. Obviously, for the carbon problem, we've got many more complexities in terms of decarbonizing all of our human systems. And, you know, that's a, a bigger task that the whole world needs to kind of be on board with. So I think that's part of why it's it's a different challenge to the ozone hole problem. Well, I've been reading about the percentage of female representation in the IPCC, and I saw that there's been an improvement. Now we have uh, in the sixth assessment report 33% of female lead authors compared to 21% in the fifth assessment report. But this percentage is, is very low. Um, what's your, your experience and what would you be your advice for the new generation of, of women in science that want to be authors of the, of the IPCC? Yeah, I think it's a very good observation that um, at the moment, you know, women remain underrepresented in the, in the authorship of the, um, of the assessment, although there has been an improvement um, since AR5, as, as you point out. I think it's... Um, you know, personally, I, I, I nominated myself, as I said before, to be a lead author. And so it requires, you know, individuals to, to be willing and ready to put themselves forward and to, to step into these roles. And I would, you know, encourage, you know, female scientists who might be thinking about this or wondering, you know, should I put myself forward? You know, am I qualified? Should I be considered? If you, you know, are interested and you're keen and you're motivated, then absolutely put, put yourselves forward. And, um, and see if you're selected. You know, you can talk to other colleagues who have been involved before. That's what I did before I, you know, wrote myself an application. I spoke to other colleagues from my department who had been involved and found out a bit more about the process and what was involved. So, yeah, I think it's it's certainly something people who are interested and motivated should should go for. You know, I I guess I was a bit nervous at the start about what was involved, whether I was going to make useful contributions to my chapter team, um, and so forth. Um, it was also a busy time in, in my life at that point. We had a young son. So my, my son was born two months before the first lead author meeting of the IPCC. So, you know, he, he came to two lead author meetings along the way. He, um, <laughs> he's not acknowledged as a contributing author in the chapter, but arguably he could be. <laughs> so he was very much a part of the journey with me um, through this this kind of cycle. And um you know, so I thought, will I manage with a young family and and having this important role? But you know, actually, in the end, it was it was a very exciting thing to do, and you know, fantastic experience to meet new colleagues and to really be involved and observe how this this process does work. Because prior to this, I 
obviously would have read IPCC reports and seen the outcomes from everybody's hard work and appreciated the assessment reports. So to now be in the middle of that process and to observe how it's actually done has been a hugely rewarding experience. And I think, you know, within my chapter, many of the colleagues, I knew some of them beforehand from, you know, having read papers and things in the literature. But, you know, we've really come to get to know each other very well during the course of the process and have huge respect for one another's scientific expertise and perspectives. So I think that's been a really enjoyable part of the process. And I think, you know, going forwards, we would only hope to see increasing representation so that we get to a more balanced, even picture in the future between male and female authors. But as I said before, you know, that another really exciting part of it is not only the dimension of gender balance in the assessment, but also the opportunity to work with scientists from all over the world. And the IPCC really is a kind of collective global group. And you have the opportunity to to meet and to work with many scientists from countries all over the world. And that's a really fantastic part of it as well. I think it's also very encouraging to see that, for example, for the last report, half of the lead authors were new, completely new to this process. So for a young scientist, it's good to see that there must be an opportunity to get in there and that there's not always the same people. I think that's really important and it's good to have experience within the process as well. And some of colleagues who are involved with the sixth assessment report have been involved with many previous IPCC assessment reports. So Piers Forster from the University of Leeds has been a very prominent figure in IPCC assessments and he's involved in the R6 as well. And, you know, from colleagues like that who who have that longer experience, you really do learn a lot about which aspects are the important ones to kind of worry about and which ones are slightly less important. <laughs> and you can still worry about them, but not worry about them quite so much. So having those sorts of people involved, but also bringing in new people to the process and having new perspectives and giving people the opportunity to take on these roles, I think is also really important as well, as you say. And people may worry, you know, am I qualified? And you know, am I suitably qualified? Can I really do this? But I think people are selected on the basis of their experience, their preparation, their scientific knowledge. And often if you're an expert in your kind of subject area, then that will be a a subject area that may be very important to the assessment and they will want to bring you in and and have you as part of the process. So yeah, I think there's, it's a good opportunity for new people to get involved. Yeah, that's great. I'm sure this will encourage a lot of people to nominate themselves to be authors of the seventh assessment report and to participate in the process in general, not only as authors, but even as reviewers that I'm sure they're always needed. (laughs) Well, as the episode comes to an end, would you like to add any final thoughts? Um, Other than just to say, you know, do go and read the assessment when it's published. So, you know, I'd encourage everybody to to go and, and have a look. And even if you're not, you know, even if you're not a scientist, you're not a specialist in climate science there are different parts of the assessment that are you know specifically designed for different end users and and different people so the chapters themselves which we've spent a lot of time working on some aspects of them are quite technical and they probably would be better suited to a, a more of a sort of scientific audience but the summary for policymakers is the opposite to that it's written in a in a much more accessible way and is targeted at people who are interested in understanding about the climate system, climate change in the past and climate change in the future. But it's written in a much 
less technical way. So even if you're not a not a scientist or you, you don't feel interested in in the kind of real nitty gritty details, then the summary for policymakers provides a really fantastic overview. So I would encourage people to go and have a look at that once it's published to find out what the latest findings from the IPCC Working Group One are. And I, I expect when when the report is published, you know there'll be media stories and things like this about it as well. So you should look out for things that you see in the press that will tell you the headline results and what the really key new findings are from the assessment. Well, now I'm looking forward to read the report. Thank you very much for sharing your experience as an IPCC lead author with us. It's been a great pleasure and inspiration to have you on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And that's a wrap. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes and follow us on Twitter using at the climate press. And if you want to get in touch with us, please visit our website, theclimatepress.com. See you soon. And remember, make love, not CO2.